Well, good morning. For the last, uh, I guess, handful of years now, we've had a children's Bible hour on Sunday evenings, and it's gone great. The kids love it. And so it's been kind of for our younger summer's kids. And so we had kind of our uh, elementary kids say, hey, can we do a Bible hour? And so uh, we began last Sunday evening a uh, Bible hour with our uh, third through uh, fifth grade. And so I asked them, uh, I said, what, what would you like to talk about? And so what are some of the things that you want to discuss and, and look at? And so um, one of the questions that came in was, well, you know, you, we've got a first and second Peter. Why don't we have a first and second Genesis? So, you know, why are, why are the books d- uh, divided the way they are? And, and uh, you know, why, what happened between Malachi and Matthew? So what was going on then? And, and then another interesting thing was what was going on in the rest of the world when the things going on in the Bible were happening? So, just kind of some interesting uh, uh, thoughts I wanted to share with you this morning, uh, just on that and, and how some of our, our kids are thinking. Uh, why are we do things the way we do? Uh, you know, why do, why do we sing? Why do we pray? Why do we, you know, take the Lord's Supper and, and, and stuff like that? So, these are some of the things we're going to be discussing, and I find it uh, just refreshing and exciting uh, with their questions and their, uh, their, their wanting to know and to understand more about uh, what it means to love and serve God and all the different aspects about that and to know more about it. So I just want to share that with you uh, this morning so that you can also uh, appreciate uh, these kids and, and their, their minds and, and their, their thinking and willingness to know. So at a, um, a high point of Jesus' popularity, uh, when he was here on the earth, he dealt with a lot of people who believed that they were part of God's kingdom. They believed it. Some of them believed it, but they were attracted by his miracles. Some were attracted by just the, the things that he said. The way he spoke uh, was different than anyone else that they had been following or listening to. And, and many of these followers also believed that because they were Jewish, that they were automatically in God's kingdom, or because they identified with Jesus, hey, we followed you around, surely we're, we're a part of this kingdom, right? And while God's grace is unlimited, the receiving of His grace is limited by the response of those to whom it's offered. And so the Beatitudes that we've kind of looked at these last couple of weeks here are, first of all, they're declarations of God's grace. They're not conditions of salvation, They're not roadmaps to to enter into God's kingdom. And although the primary purpose of the Beatitudes is to declare blessings of those who are in God's kingdom, most scholars will will regard them as painting a picture of the character of God's kingdom. And so remember, kingdom is where the king's will is carried out. And so God is, is not trying to impose His will on the, the lives of mankind, He's like other kingdoms do. And the people here Jesus was speaking to were living in under the, the imposition of the Roman Empire. And so they, they had lived their whole lives having things imposed upon them. But God doesn't want to impose His will. He wants to plant His will in the hearts of mankind. And so as the seeds spring up from this planting, then we are transformed into people who are living and reflecting the image of God. And so Paul would write in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, don't be conformed, don't be shaped by this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. And so as we live under this, the kingdom rule of God, we experience His grace. We, we, can, we can feel it, we can, we can see it, we can taste it, we can touch it. 
And that grace transforms us and it can be seen in our lives and and how our attitudes change and how our relationships change, how our actions change. And so we hope to become more like those whom Jesus calls blessed. And so the Beatitudes are not a judgment against everyone who fails to measure up to what Jesus is presenting here. Because who can? Who can measure up to this to, to the fullest degree? And so I think that's why he begins with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize that, that I'm in such despair because I cannot live up to the standards of God's kingdom. And more poor in spirit realizing my own pitiful ability. And so instead, these are a, a blessing for anyone who would consent to join themselves to God's kingdom as it, as it comes near, His kingdom come. And so the kingdom of God is the essence of the church, church's message, of the, of the church's life. And so we are called to the kingdom's life and power in the present, now, while we live, while we still anticipate its fullness, the, the realization of it in, 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 in the future. And so triumph and victory may characterize the attitude of each citizen of God's kingdom, yet God didn't promise a life without struggle. We are people, we are more than conquerors, right? Scripture would say. Yet we live in more struggle sometimes than than we can imagine, we can even handle in some days. And so the dominion being recovered through the presence of the King within us and ministered by the Holy Spirit's power through us is never taught by the apostles as preempting suffering. And so who is ready? Who then is ready to receive the kingdom of God, to let God's will rule their life? Well, first of all, the one who is broken. The one who is broken by their place in in, in this sinful world. Who realizes that without God I am nothing. It's the one who is poor in spirit. That's where it begins. And so the one who realizes that sin has ruined them and they mourn themselves. They mourn their position, their condition. They mourn the whole world. They mourn those around who reject God's will and reject God's way. Yet they are comforted by the assurance of salvation through the sacrificial blood of God's Son Jesus on that cross. And so we embrace this humble attitude towards the injustice of the world, recognizing that God is the great reconciler and revenge is not a fruit of the Spirit. (laughs) Revenge is not a fruit of the Spirit. Attack is not a fruit of the Spirit. And so the spirit of meekness allows us to see the good in people and situations and not dwell on the bad. But without these attitudes, without these characteristics, we cannot begin to understand what it means to live in the kingdom of God. But when we do that, That understanding of what it means to live in the kingdom of God creates within us this hunger, this insatiable thirst that only God can satisfy. It's the insatiable hunger of the human heart. It's that relentless thirst of the human soul. And so Jesus would say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And although I have never starved in the strictest medical sense, I've been plenty hungry. I've been with some of y'all that have been pretty hungry before. I've been hungry enough to want to gnaw my right arm off. Y'all ever been in that position before? Maybe not your right arm because you're right-handed. But so, and I felt that this this deep feeling inside that's uncomfortable enough to take over my attitude and my actions and make me worse than a werewolf in a full moon. So I've felt that before. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I've been in a position where I start 
eating whatever is quickly accessible in the pantry because I'm too hungry to take time to, to fix anything that's actually a legitimate meal. And so I'm like, need food now. You know, you, you hear that voice in your head. And so you go in the pantry and you go from some stale chips to, to choking down some dry oatmeal to, to old Halloween candy. And where does that leave you? Nothing satisfies you. Or have you ever been thirsty enough to drink warm water? <laughs> Y'all are wishing you hadn't eaten breakfast now, right? I remember going to Camp Wildwood in the summertime, and, and so this was back in the day when Camp Wildwood was actually physical activity. They're soft now, y'all. Camp, they're soft. The kids are, they, they have no idea what it was like to struggle through church camp in the summer, Arkansas summer. So in August, we'd go to church camp, and so we'd spend all day hiking, right? Hiking. Just out there, just miserable in the heat. We didn't realize how miserable we were, but we were miserable. And so you get back to the canteen. The first thing you want to do, you want to be first in line and get up to the canteen. And so, man, I'd get up there and I'd have enough money in my little account, you know, my little coin account. I said, give me three cups of Coke. And I would chug down three cups of Coke. And I would be what? Still thirsty. Still thirsty. It doesn't satisfy. So we get hungry. We get thirsty. But what are we hungering for? Well, sometimes we hunger for acceptance, or we hunger for, for promotion, or we hunger for relationship. And, and hunger is often used to, to convey this, this consuming desire, like a, like a young and inexperienced basketball team who's just hungry for a conference win, you know, or, or, or maybe an individual who after a, a string of losses or failures... It's just hungry for success. I just need to get one step ahead. Hunger is a common biblical theme. But listen to how it's used. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55 and verse 1, Hey, all who are thirsty, come to the water. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why pay money for something that will not nourish you? Why spend your hard-earned money on something that will not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is nourishing. Enjoy fine food. So Jesus uses these references of what it really means to satisfy the hunger of the human soul. He uses that in the Sermon on the Mount to communicate this blessed appetite for a particular pursuit. And that pursuit is righteousness. And so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now, if you go to a modern dictionary and you look up righteous, you're going to find something like characterized by uprightness or morality, very formal definition, or morally right or justifiable. Another one says acting in an upright moral way or virtuous. And so a life pursuing these qualities without the proper motivation sounds a lot more pharisaical than we should be comfortable with. Upright moral behavior is righteous when it comes from a righteous heart. And so that's what Jesus regularly taught the Pharisees and anyone else who would listen. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, dealt with this, this sort of thinking that righteousness was only about doing things this way or that way. It's only, only about the actions that we partake in. And so he would say, the kingdom of God is not about ritual. The kingdom of God is about relationship. And so in Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, he says, for the kingdom of God does not consist of food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
So the biblical definition of righteous is a little more nuanced than our dictionary's definition. Righteousness is more than observing the law, and it's far deeper than just checking off commandments of of, of right things to do. And so picture this audience that Jesus is listening to. Most of them were probably Galileans. That's the area he was in, preaching and teaching. And so they were Galileans, not well liked by the rest of the Jewish community. And so they were lower class citizens. And and, and similar in a way to how the the Jews at large would look at Samaritans. And we've seen evidence of that in Scripture too. And so when you look at the crowd surrounding Jesus, what would you think their view of righteousness would be? What would their view be? Well, I can almost guarantee you that their view of righteousness was a skewed view. It's a wrong view. Why? Because it's the view they had been seeing portrayed in their leaders, their religious leaders. And so you can't overlook the connection that Jesus is making later in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, where He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond that, of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, those who who are supposed to be leading you, unless your righteousness exceeds them, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot live under the kingdom rule of God if you were trying to self-righteous yourself into it. And so Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal says that we have this God-shaped vacuum in our lives, how he described it, a God-shaped vacuum. And so all humans are hungry and thirsty. The problem is, we try to fill that emptiness, we try to, to satisfy that hunger with things other than righteousness of God. And so, everything around us, when you look around, everything around us, we need this product, or we need this relationship, or this accomplishment in order to fill that void that we have in our lives. And sometimes we don't even realize there is a void until some event, something, or someone brings that to our attention. They point it out. You ever been so hungry that you forget to eat? You've been so, I mean, so busy you forget to eat. Not hungry you forget to eat, but so busy that you forget to eat. You get busy during the day and you forget to eat. Or you're thinking maybe, you know, I'm really not that hungry. It's time for lunch, but I'm really not that hungry. But once you slow down, you slow down enough for, for your mind to catch up with your body or your, that, that first taste of food hits your tongue then you're like, man, I didn't realize how hungry I was, right? And you're just ravaging everything. Well, the psalmist conveys all of these mighty characteristics and all these acts of God, and and yet it's no wonder that he also feels the need to, to convey this plea of God in Psalm 46 and verse 10. He says, be still and know that I am God. And it's no wonder that we have a trouble, we struggle grasping the, the, the kingdom rule of God in our lives today because we're so busy and we're so distracted and we wonder why we can't seem to fill this God-shaped void that's in our spirit here. And some of you are empty. Some of you are, cannot be satisfied. You can't get satisfied. And maybe you're trying to fill that God-shaped void in your life with all kinds of things, but you're left empty. You're left unsatisfied. There's this incredible message of hope if you search for the answer. Listen again to Isaiah's words. A little different translation. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. 
I think we, we spend our, our, our money, we use our talents chasing, chasing things that don't satisfy. And we leave ourselves wondering, why am I still hungry? Why am I still thirsting for something? Why can I not find it? Maybe we're drinking from cisterns that can hold no water. We're drinking from cups, from jars, from vats that got holes in them. It won't even hold water. And still our satisfaction is, is not being met in these other things. And so we try to satisfy ourselves with things like money or status or education or harmful relationships. All these things that we can possess, that we can accumulate. Things that allow us fun. They allow us entertainment for a time. But where does it leave us? All these lead to this deeper sense of need. Leave us hungering even more, this deeper longing for satisfaction because they don't fill that need that we need filled. It's like when you're so hungry that you just start grabbing junk to eat. And your body, what it really needs is legitimate nourishment. And so what happens? The more junk we eat, the more unsatisfied we are, and the more junk we eat trying to satisfy that, we're still not satisfied. And so what do we think? Well, I just need to eat some different junk. And so we just go from one pile of junk to the other, trying to satisfy what we can. And you can only eat so much junk food before your body revolts, right? (laughs) And so it's like traveling. If you travel for over a period of time, you know, and, and eventually you get to the point to where I do not want to see another hamburger, right? You've been to that point. And so Jesus would also tell His disciples in Matthew 6, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about things in your life like food or drink or about even clothes. And these folks didn't have Walmart. They couldn't run down to to Dollar General and, and pick up something real quick. But we can hear Him say to us today, don't worry about the basics of life. Don't worry about that because when we allow worry and we allow anxiety to creep in and get a hold on our life, then we go into survival mode. And so everything we do, every thought we have is how not to lose what we have or how to get more of what we're trying to hold on to. And it can consume us. It becomes a consuming endeavor. And so there's this reordering of our lives. It has to take place. Our priorities have to be realigned with God's priorities because as Jesus reminds us, this worrying, this pursuing of these... Things that will never satisfy. That's what people outside of the kingdom do. That is their kingdom. And so, Matthew 6.32, he says, For the unconverted, for those outside of the kingdom, they pursue these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But above all, pursue His kingdom and righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So then do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. Does that mean the trouble's going to go away? Does that mean that I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to any more need the, the physical things that I need day to day? No. But I think what this means is her perspective's going to change and my focus is not going to be on that. And so when I don't have as much as I want, I'm not going to notice it. It's not going to mean anything to me because my, pur- my, my, my focus, my endeavor, my purpose is on the kingdom righteousness of God. So he said, seek. Literally, make it your priority to find. Search it out. Have this constant preoccupation, not with what you don't have, but what God freely gives. That's His kingship. 
Seek this, pursue it, and live under His direction and control. So I think we could say from Scripture, figure out. Figure out how you can purchase, how you can obtain this bigger house that you're looking for. Do that. But do it so that you'll have more room to practice hospitality. Do it for a kingdom purpose. And aim for for those professional plateaus. Aim for the highest in your, your profession, in your career, so that you have a platform to reach even more people with the message of the kingdom of God. Work yourself to advance in your career, but do it so that you can be in a position to influence the moral compass of your company. Do it for that reason. Start your own business. Do it so that you can have a a, a means, an avenue, with which you can share Christ with those around you. Get involved in community organizations. Hobnob. Hook up with other people that you can have, have communication with so that you are in a position to share the message and to be an example of the kingdom of God. Find a place to serve with the congregation. Whatever your ambitions are, whatever your, your, your talents are, however your talents develop, whatever opportunities come your way, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's about our attitude. It's about our heart and what we pursue. And so I need to ask, is it for self-gain? Is it just for me? Is it self-promotion? That's what the Pharisees were about. That's why Jesus called them out. It was all about them. Jesus says our righteousness, our rightness, our pursuit of this must exceed that than what we see in the Pharisees and people like that. They were seeking their own benefits by doing what looked like God's work. So He says make it your priority to find, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all this other stuff will be added to you. It will all fall into place. But understand, he says, all of these things, what things? The things he's talking about. He doesn't say all things. He says all of these things. A disciple is promised survival. Not influence, not status, not accumulation. Seek God's rule and His Kingdom righteousness. So is it, is it His righteousness or is it our righteousness when you read through here? It seems like Scripture goes back and forth, doesn't it, at times? But understand that biblical terminology used to, to indicate this word righteousness is from one basic word group, which varies from, from the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so we can't fully grasp what Jesus meant until we understand Matthew was a Jew and he likely wrote to a Jewish audience and he used terminology that they would be familiar with. And so Matthew is proclaiming Jesus the Christ as the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. He is presenting Him through the lens of a Jewish worldview. And so this righteousness has rich historical significance for the Jewish people. And understanding that helps us draw meaning for today. And so a simple definition for us, righteousness, would be fulfillment of the expectations of a relationship with God. What does that mean? That means doing what would be expected for someone who is in a relationship with God. It doesn't mean exactly the same thing everywhere it's found. Although at the heart of this word, it's, it's rightness with God. And in a more general sense, it's, it's rightness that promotes the well-being and peace of the community. So there's a common phrase we see in the Law of Moses that it underlies this idea of righteousness that promotes this peace and well-being in the community. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 40, we hear it come up early. It says, 
Keep his statutes and commandments that I am setting forth today, Moses says, so that I'm, it may go well with you and your descendants and that you may enjoy longevity in the land that the Lord your God is about to give you as a permanent possession. So the reason that God's will, that his way is the best for everyone is because it promotes peace. It promotes well-being in a community of people who are living by the standards of God. And so that that it may go well with you, he says. But this righteousness of God is not just following rules. It's not just following laws, which is what the Pharisees had reduced it to. And a lot of people today may think that way too. But God seeks restoration to restore us. His eye has always been on the poor, on the outcast, on the hurting, on those who are lonely. And so that it may go well with you. And so when we reduce righteousness of God to some acts of religion, then we've watered down and we've self-justified our relationship with God. And so pure religion is not just making sure that we do church right and then go home feeling like, well, we did everything right today or I did everything right today. What does James write? James 1 and verse 27. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows and their misfortune and what? To keep oneself unstained by the world. Self-righteousness glorifies me. The righteousness I must hunger for is that which glorifies God. And so the righteousness of God is found through obedience. Obedience to God that promotes peace and well-being in the community, in the kingdom. And so this physically, emotionally, and and spiritually abandoned or abused, those who are starving, those who are are begging, they cry out, where's my peace? Where's my well-being? Where is God's righteousness in my life? Where is it for me? Well, it's found the same place it's found for everyone, in the kingdom rule of God. But it's hard to see when you're outside the kingdom Looking in. And so those around us, they experience God's kingdom come when we, the, the, the body of Christ, the church, when we care for their physical and emotional and spiritual needs, when we address those with them. And so Jesus is speaking to people here who are hungry, who are thirsting for God's justice, God's righting of wrongs, and God's peace, God's well-being in the community of, of faithful followers. It's God's righteousness prevailing. That's what they hunger for. And so Jesus pronounces us blessed because God is going to satisfy that hunger. He's going to quench our thirst. And He did it, right? What did we read earlier? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, that God made the one who did not know sin. That's Jesus, His Son, the Christ. He who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in Him we would become what? The righteousness of God. Not in ourselves, but in Him. God's righteousness is available to us through His only Son, through Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the righteousness of God and He imparts that righteousness to us. And so when we are baptized into Christ and we become members of His body, the righteousness of God is revealed in and through our lives as we obey His kingdom will. So we are evidence of that living hope. And we are evidence of God's healing. And we are evidence of God's righteousness. And so when Paul would write 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, that He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus 
who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this deep, lasting satisfaction for our souls doesn't come from from what we can get from this world that we live in. It doesn't come from merely a, a religious or vertical relationship with God. The satisfaction comes from God to those whose passion, whose, whose life's hunger and thirst is to know Him in the struggle to be like Him in this world. So we want to live a life that's attractive to those who don't even know they need the astounding truth of the Gospel. We want to live that life. But we also live in this constant tension of this sinful world and our sinful Reaction and in life, it's at times in this world, our sinful desires that, that drag us away from true righteousness. We struggle with that and we feel that tension. So I can be starving for righteousness. I can follow Jesus' lead. I can feel immensely satisfied by my relationship with Jesus Christ. And then, say, a, a few hours later, say around dinner time, I can be immensely Hungry again for dinner. For something completely different. My mind just takes off in a whole different direction. My hunger for righteousness comes and goes, doesn't it? And sometimes my hunger for worldly things takes over. And it's frustrating. And and the apostles were frustrated by this battle, this struggle, this human struggle. And Paul said of all the self-righteousness that he had obtained, and he had obtained a lot, he had status, He had privilege. He had knowledge. He said, I consider it all worth as much as human waste. That's what he said. I consider it dung for the sake of Christ. He goes on in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. That I may gain Christ. I consider it all dung that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, not from what I've done, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness. A righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. So my aim is to know Him, to experience the power of His resurrection, to share in His sufferings, and to be like Him in His death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And he's not saying here so that somehow I may, I may receive the resurrection from the dead because in Christ He's already received it even though He has not experienced it yet because He's still living in this human body. What he's saying here is that so I want to, to know Christ and, and share in His sufferings so that I may finally reach what I already believe is mine. And that's the resurrection from the dead. So I keep pressing on. I keep moving forward because God so loved the people of this world that He gave His one and only Son, Jesus, to live and to die and to live again so that in Him the righteousness of God may be revealed. And that the righteousness of God may be available to all who believe in Him, to all who are baptized into Jesus Christ, who die to themselves to meet Christ in the grave of baptism, to have the sins washed away. Because when you are raised in a new life, you cannot, you're not raised in those old sins. They are gone from you. And God raises us up in Christ into a new life, a new person, to live faithfully as members of God's kingdom. And that's an eternal kingdom. And, It's a kingdom come. This morning, what are you hungering and thirsting for? What have you been 
chasing after, that you can't seem to get your hands on, when all the while Christ is saying, just take my hand as I reach it out to you and be satisfied in me. Feel and fill that hole, that God-shaped void that's within you. And do that through a relationship with me. And So this morning, we can pray with you in your human struggle to hunger and thirst, not for things of this world, but for the righteousness of God, to be a kingdom-dwelling, kingdom-living member of God's family. We want to do that while we assemble together. And if you're ready to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to be added to God's kingdom, to live under His kingdom rule, then we want to celebrate you with you this morning as we stand and sing this good song. Will you come?